listeners and welcome to podcast 150 in our series You Should Have Been There with me Simon Calder and me Mick Webb and yes it's true this really is our 150th recording and as such should be accompanied by the sound of champagne well it's our so Prosecco corks popping but it is quite early in the morning here at uh, London's St Pancras station so we'll make do with the sound of coffee cups clinking cheers (laughs) and the odd station announcement as we recall some of our favourite moments from the past three and a half years and where better to start than with the very first podcast on borders that aired as they say on the 18th of October 2019 Hello fellow travellers and welcome to You Should Have Been There. It's a new podcast about travel and travellers' tales. And uh, with me to tell a few of them is the man who pays his way, Simon Calder. And with me is the producer, travel writer and polyglot. He speaks many languages, Mick Webb, who tries to get me to pay his way as well. We have travelled rather a lot together for work and pleasure. And despite that, we can still just about bear to talk to one another and indeed to you. We're going to kick off this first podcast by talking about frontiers, borders, Um Something that I think you've crossed many times in in your uh, professional life. Uh, well, I yes, of course, it's necessary and it's also exciting, and it can be uh, very frustrating. But the great thing about almost all the frontiers I've ever seen is that they are ridiculously porous. And, for example, um, in some wilder parts of the world, their sole purpose is not to control the flow of uh, people across um, borders from one country to another. Um, It's a job creation scheme. And given that you you and I have both been to some fairly sleepy uh, frontiers, we seem to be the entertainment an example which uh, springs to my mind is when we travelled from Colombia to Panama in the, I think it was the late 90s, wasn't it? At a time when the FARC guerrilla were very active um, in, in that region. Uh, and also equally active were the uh, militia, who were mainly off-duty Colombian army personnel, who um, were being paid quite a lot of money to um, to try and... To, Kill them. Uh, well, yes, and they're also uh, a good selection of uh, of, of narco uh, smugglers as well, who um, who wanted to uh, uh, get across the frontier. And of course, this is maybe maybe the most porous frontier in the world since the actual border is well the Darien Gap. Um, we weren't trying to go straight through the middle. We'd been warned by the British Embassy in Colombia not to try that. We were trying to skirt around the side and um, my goodness me we did seem to succeed yes we did even though we nearly fell at the first hurdle because the border guards at the tiny crossing were not impressed by our recording equipment Uh, we were making a documentary for radio 4 um, and they were not keen to let us into Panama until we explained that we were bird watchers, which uh, seemed to do the trick. And I remember that it was getting dark and they had to borrow a torch from us to search our baggage while the howler monkeys howled in the surrounding jungle. Ah, oh, Mick, those were the days. 
Well, yes, and uh, you know that back then, when we recorded that first podcast, the UK was still in the EU, and you could be forgiven for forgetting that there was a border between us and France. Not now, though. Um, I've heard you a lot on the national media this week, reporting from Dover. Again. Yes, I spent rather more time than I would have liked in Dover this week. It's a perfectly pleasant town, but I was there to report on, well, the terrible mess in the first weekend of April when tens of thousands of passengers on coaches um, were the first in line for the proper collision between the reality of loads of people wanting to travel abroad and new Brexit passport rules which we asked to have um, so we could be treated the same as people from Venezuela and Tonga and have all our passports closely examined and stamped. And uh, yes, I, I will actually, I did actually manage to get away over the Easter weekend on an expedition to Calais. And maybe I'll talk about that next time because we're in podcast 151 going to be talking about planning, which um, was a bit lacking. <laughs> Well, why am I not surprised to hear that? But uh, let's get back to our celebration of ourselves. Over the course of our 150 podcasts, we have chatted about all manner of travel-related subjects, from the trivial, but still interesting, like weird local drinks, to the serious and sublime, like travel philosophy. And one of my favourites last year on psychogeography where we met up with Jean McNeil at London's Barbican Centre for some philosophical enlightenment with a strange but fitting intervention from nature. Jean McNeil, tell us where we are and what's going on. You're in charge. (laughs) Yikes, yikes, Simon. Well, you've come to the wrong person because I do know the Barbican quite well, but it is such a labyrinth here. I have to say I still don't know where I'm going and I've got a really good sense of direction. So, I hope we're going to go to the left, and then we're going to find some coffee. I see where we're going. I know where we're going. We're going over there. Hello again, fellow travellers. Welcome to the 117th podcast of our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Simon Calder, and me, Mick Webb. And today, after many false starts, we are going to tackle the knotty topic of psychogeography. And fortunately, as you might have guessed, we have someone here to help untangle those knots. Writer and academic Jean McNeil. Hello, Jean. How lovely to meet you up here on the roof of London's Barbican building, where we have eventually got hold of that coffee. Yes. Hi, Mick. Hi, Simon. I'm um, now coffeeed up. I've eaten half a croissant. I'm ready to go. <laughs> well, thank goodness for that. Before we get on to uh, psychogeography, I need to mention a tweet from listener Andy Nash. You might recall our musings in the last podcast about the Bielefeld conspiracy, the theory that Germany's 18th largest city doesn't actually exist. Luckily, Andy can reassure us that it does. Um, He says, I visited a friend from the university who lived there in 1993. (laughs) I would point out that was nearly 30 years ago, Andy, and it may not exist now. But he says, 
At the time, his mum had a car with the perfect Bielefeld registration. Now, for this, you need to know that the first, generally, the first two letters of a city's name are used to um, uh, begin the registration. And this was B-I, which you would expect, and then E-R, in other words, German for beer. And Andy also sent a very good picture of the hanging tram of Wuppertal that you can see on our Twitter feed. You should have BT. Gene, can I just ask, have you been to the elusive Bielefeld and have you seen the dangling tram of Wuppertal? I haven't. That's such an interesting concept. German cities, which should exist, but might not. (laughs) (laughs) It's supposedly, uh, Gene, we did reveal last week, it's supposed to be a satire on um, conspiracy theories if you see what I mean. So the conspiracy theory that Bielefeld doesn't exist is a satirical um, invention. And that's what you say. They say that. Ah, Anyway. Anyway. Moving moving on swiftly. Moving on swiftly. Um, And I must say, I hadn't actually realised what the joke was until you pointed it out, that it is actually the German for beer, B-I-E-R. But um, I am a bit slow this morning. Um, But let's get on to psychogeography, which, um, to my mind, uh, Gene, does have something in common with the Bielefeld. Uh, Does it really exist? And if so, what is it? Well, I guess we have to think, how do we define things that exist and things that don't exist? (laughs) I mean, it does exist in that enough writers, very kind of very um, well thought of, but well regarded writers, have have kind of written it into existence, I would say. But then also in some more esoteric belief systems, you could argue, or atavistic belief systems, people have always thought that the land has energies. The land actually speaks to you if you know how to listen to it. So I think it comes from that. But if you'd like me to define it, psychogeography means the effect of a geographical location on the emotion and behavior of individuals. Well, I wanted to ask you whether uh, if you set out to do a bit of psychogeography or psychogeographical um, research or to experience it anyway, can you use a map? Because I read somewhere um, that uh, what you should do is pack your Mac. uh, (laughs) Pack (laughs) pack your map and your Mac. But then leave home, hang on to your Mac, obviously, if you're in London, but throw the map in the first bin you see and then just head off somewhere random to where something takes you. Is that fair enough? I think that's the sort of classic kind of 20th century, 20, early 21st century psychogeography as practiced so brilliantly by Ian Sinclair. But I think, you know, there, in, in his work, I should say, let me just say what he does, I think, which is quite unique, is he uses the city to riff off of all sorts of different types of thoughts and considerations and, you know, history, politics, the self, desire, you know, it's, it's, he uses the city as a kind of scaffold. Um, and I think, yes, but you need to know where you're going to a certain extent or oh. have a plan. Do you need to In have his a... work, he always has a plan, oh. I think it's fair to say. Um, but he allows himself to be deviated from that plan. But now we're so directed and instrumentalized by these tracking devices that we call smartphones that, you know, very few people, I think, wander around in that kind of aleatory way anymore. And actually, even if you think think you're wandering, you're not. You're being directed to a particular flower market because you want a particular lifestyle that's associated with the flower market or you want something from a shop. What's really interesting is trying to wander around cities which are not particularly capitalist, like Havana and Cuba, and then you become 
like there's hardly any shops, you know, even now. And so then you become very aware of the kind of architecture of the city because you're not being constantly, you know, as I said before, lured or allured, you know, into these traps. And, and you have an... Oh, oh, there we go. Oh, that's a, oh no, that's a very fine... There's the ghost. There's the, the ghost. The wind has just blown yeah. my script all over the barbican. Right. Oh, Excuse dear. me, I'm just going to go and find it. Go on, you keep, do this keep is a very. This is a very psychogeographic moment. There goes Mick looking for... Oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, well, look, well, while Mick um, runs around the... Uh, oh, hang on, there's another one gone. We've lost another one, Mick. <laughs> right, uh, this is very funny. Um, so, the, Mick had, had all his research notes, like a very good um, uh, uh, producer, presenter. Um, have we... A very kind of... Yeah. A chap, uh, probably a, a visitor, a tourist, has just, has just um, brought back page two of the script. Right, That's okay. all there is. But, 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 but this is very suitably random, because Mick's got dozens of pieces of paper, yeah, which well, are now in completely different order. Is that, are you approving of this? I think so. I think we should just mix them up, the old David oh, Bowie, no, is, cut, yeah. cut up your notes and see, put it all together again. I must look up, Mick, what the great philosophers have said about words suddenly going missing. Anyway, if there'd been a prize for the best wind-assisted podcast, we might have won something at the UK Podcast Awards. Well, we might have done if I hadn't been too mean to pay the entrance fee. Well, among my favourite podcasts have been the ones where we've gone behind the scenes of travel and talked to the tour guides or the long-haul pilot Mark Van Honecker about his unique perspective on places. And more recently for Podcast 140, the man in seat 61, Mark Smith, an unsung hero of travel, a devoted international rail passenger, and now guru because he has created a substantial and splendid website that tells you pretty much everything you need to know about train travel from the UK, much of it starting here at St Pancras, to the continent and beyond. Uh, let's start you off with an easy one. How do I get to Marseille from the UK, given that there is no train direct? Well, you're right, Simon. The direct train doesn't run. But it was always a bit early for me, 7.20 or so out of London. If you take the 11.04 Eurostar to Lille, you can make a really easy same station change in Lille onto a direct train from Lille to Marseille, a high-speed TGV, and that saves you having to faff about in Paris. Although faffing about in Paris, if I read your excellent website correctly, is a really nice thing to do if you go to the Gare de Lyon and you um, uh, make sure that you get a pre-journey uh, meal at the, um, uh, is it Le Train Bleu, Bleu the brasserie there? It is. Uh, the grandest station buffet I think you'll ever see. Uh, it's a fabulous restaurant, actually in the station itself. It was opened, I think, around 1903 uh, at the Gare de Lyon. Uh, it's not the cheapest place in the world, but boy, it's a great place to have uh, lunch between your, a morning Eurostar and an afternoon train, not just to Marseille, but to Italy or Switzerland or even Barcelona. Well, I, uh, that's, that's all very good, but I'm actually looking across. I can see a Nero Express. I can see a Delista France, and I can see a vast weather spoon. So I'm not really sure that the French have the right idea. I'd take the trampler over a weather spoon any day. Yeah, I think I'm with you there, Mark. And uh, indeed, this leads us on to your website, themaninseat61.com. And uh, a question I'm sure you've been asked a million times and are sick of answering, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How come you chose that name? Well, the name sort of chose itself because uh, I would treat myself to Eurostar's first class 
if I was going somewhere special, like the Crimea or to uh, Tokyo via Brussels, Moscow and Vladivostok or down to Marrakesh via Paris <laughs> like and Madrid, you as you do. And I got fed up with being put in a seat next to a, a wall or the seat with the emergency exit metal bar right at my eye level. I thought, I'll look at the seat plan, come up with a seat that ticks every box. And of course, it was seat 61, coach 7, 8, 11 or 12 on the original Eurostars. So when the site came along, there was the name, the man in seat 61. And thus, great brands are created, Mark. Now, your name came up, actually. Um, during the week, there was an online independent uh, session about travel. And um, we were explaining how... Effectively, there was a vacuum of knowledge for travel. The internet came along, you came along, and you put the two together in a way that no company has ever done. So talk us through the site. What does it do? How's it going to help me? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, I was, I've always found it really simple to take the train, not just to Paris and Brussels, but to Italy or Switzerland or Budapest or Madrid. Uh, and the difficult bit is finding anyone in the commercial world will tell you how to do it. So I thought I'd be sort of subversive and put the information online. And this is going back 20 years ago. I can't believe it now. Did we even have the internet in 2001? We must have done, because that's when I registered the the URL, the name. Um, So it tells you, in very simple terms, the best train times outward from the UK to pretty much every country in Europe, from Portugal to Moldova. tells you the best train times back. It tells you roughly how much it costs or the starting price. And it tells you how to book it because, of course, there isn't a magic Eurorail booking system. You have to use different websites for different routes, different operators and different trains. Uh, And it shows you something of what the journey and the trains are like because everyone knows what a plane's like. But, of course, nobody knows what this mysterious thing called a couchette is or what it looks like or how it works and you know business class business premier standard premier second class uh all the trains are different so something photographs that show you what you're actually going to get when you make the journey and something about the scenery and the sights because the journey is in my way of thinking just as important as the destination well i'm sure mark knows this spot where we're sitting very well indeed because it's um Uh, very close to the departure point of the Eurostar uh, trains to Brussels and Paris. There are about three of them uh, lined up there behind us. Um, And anyway, I'm going to be taking advantage of some of Mark's excellent advice next week when I make a journey to and around northwestern Spain. And this will include, I hope, several trips on the FEVE. F-E-V-E, Spain's narrow gauge rail network, including a bizarre and I hope delightful meander from the city of Leon through the Cantabrian mountains to Bilbao. Mm. Um, But I do digress. Um, Here's another of my favorite podcasts, the audio diary of our Pyrenean adventure along the rather worryingly named GR101. I was looking forward to this with particular anticipation because it was our first mountain trek since Covid and the chance to record the ups and downs of real travel. Here we are on day one of the hike in our customary race against the clock to get to a bed and a meal before sundown. We're making quite good progress and maybe we will actually even get to the uh, refuge by six o'clock which would be absolutely amazing. Uh, I have put a bit of a break on proceedings by managing to put my foot on a rock, a wet rock, which turned out to be 
as slippery as an ice rink and I fell over on my shoulder which hurts quite a lot but I'm trying not to um, make too much of a fuss and to put a brave face on it all uh, and uh, then <laughs> and hope it doesn't uh, deteriorate enough of my woes let's get going what a joyful sound and what a lovely place to arrive we've had a bit of a scramble for various reasons and we have finally arrived at the refuge which is a grand sight in itself not least because they are busily getting supper ready they are selling us beer um, there's a lovely atmosphere because we're on a kind of veranda overlooking a beautiful natural lake and there's glacial towering cirque I would say is that a cirque I quite probably actually it seems like a semicircle and it's got lots of different coloured rocks um, sort of pale cream orangey grey and then reaching up to a fantastic what would you call that a pinnacle and oh, uh, yes. the sun is setting on it so it all yeah. looks very good indeed and if my shoulder didn't hurt I'd be in in seventh heaven but uh, luckily one of our fellow uh, um, refugees, refugees yes. if you say that yes has offered me a painkiller which I might actually take her up on later well, I'm gonna have my own painkiller which is um, uh, made by Kronenberg I think in Strasbourg ah. and, um, Alsatian beer and I'm very very glad to be here Very good help. Good. Well, well done. Cheers. Mick is brilliant at organising these expeditions. He plans everything meticulously, but uh, as you heard, things often go awry. Yeah, not just the shoulder injury, but uh, loss of my favourite sunglasses, um, which caused quite a lot of a kerfuffle involving not just you, but um, a couple of um, very nice um, passing young mountaineers. That was podcast 125, Many a Slip, which I think was one of our better titles. But let's finish with my last choice of something which has become an annual treat for me. The You Should Have Been There Very Hard Christmas Quiz, which you compiled brilliantly, Mick. Um, this year's took the form of a boxing match, with each of us trying to land a blow on the other in rounds that were announced by a very feeble bell. <laughs> well, this is round four, and it is weird brews. Well, Simon, do you want to start with a weird brew and see if I can get it, guess it? Yes, let me tell you that this one, um, which I have certainly sampled, tastes like three-week-old washing up water. It numbs your tongue and your lips, uh, very much um, a, an acquired taste. But of course, it's a cultural experience in the part of the world um, where it is served up, which is actually the South Pacific. Um, it's uh, created by drying and crushing the roots of the plant that gives it its name and of course inevitably you cannot ever decline an offer of it um, in case you offend your hosts and I'm going to give you a bit of a bit of a clue here Mick which is that yeah. there's a there's a sparkling Spanish drink 
which sounds remarkably similar. Yes, it's Sava. Ah. Carver. Yeah, Carver is the one, K-A-V-A. And you know, I it's just pronounced Carver, is it, yeah, rather than Sava? Yeah. I, I, I thought it was yeah. C-A-V-A. I thought it was the same spelling. Well, that is... Um, very good. Um, you've given me quite a lot of help there, but um, uh, and it does sound absolutely horrible. But I will try it um, the next time I'm uh, down the South Pacific way. Um, okay, here's my one. Um, this has certain similarities. Um, it's disgusting and weirdly refreshing in equal measure. And I sort of, it's a kind of beer, really. But mm. um, a description of it might be. Milky, thick, sour, viscous, various things that we're not allowed to mention um, on this podcast have been compared to it. Um, It's a very ancient drink. Um, It was supposed to cure everything. It was the drink of the gods, according to the priests. Um, And it has made a bit of a comeback uh, in its country of origin. I'm going to give it a guess, Mick. I'm going to say kvass, which I believe is fermented mare's milk, very popular in Central Asia. Well, cracking guess, but um, not at all correct. (laughs) Um, It's probably very similar, actually, in flavour. This is pulque uh, from uh, sunny Mexico. And it's it's actually made from the um, uh, maguey cactus which is the one that also gives us uh, mezcal these days you can actually drink the um, original or you can get a, a sort of a sanitized version of it really with fruit and grains and a bit of kind of nice flavor added which is called curado and um, it's quite popular i believe in some of the uh, the bars of mexico city although it is actually um, best drunk in oaxaca ah well, Mick, cheers. Um, I imagine it's not quite as alcoholic as mezcal. No, not at all. It's really a, a, a kind of beer, sort of 2 to 4% as against mezcal, which I imagine is about 99 <laughs> But uh, um, let's get on, though, too. Well, I'm sorry about the quality of the bell, but I think I shaded the contest on points, didn't I? Uh, You certainly did, Mick. I will get my travel coat. Um, Just before we leave um, London St Pancras International, of course, you can find the full range of all the podcasts we've done since that fateful day before the COVID pandemic and listen to them again, lucky you. We're also very, very keen to hear from you about um, podcasts you like, podcasts you don't like, and, of course, your views on the, the whole realm of travel you can tweet us at, at you should have bt or leave us an audio message at anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there next week's podcast will be about the subject that we alluded to earlier the difference between uh, well-planned expeditions and um, extremely ill-planned expeditions And an important part of that, of course, is planning your flight connections. We've had loads of correspondence and different views on whether it's best to have a long layover, a short layover, and how to make the most of those connections. Do let us know your thoughts. Meanwhile, from me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. Goodbye. Goodbye.